Nothing happens in Congress without having a champion. You can't have an idea that's sort of floating around. It has to have a bill number. It has to have language. And it has to be introduced by somebody. I'm Larry LaRocco. Uh, I'm a former congressman from the 1st District of Idaho. I served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1991 to 1995. As the 1980s came to a close, a political shift was occurring in Idaho, as well as across the country. After a short hiatus from political office, Cecil Andrus once again ran for governor in 1986. He won and began his third term as Idaho's governor in January of 1987. Andrus was fully aware of the limited time remaining before his administrative withdrawal of the Birds of Prey area would expire, but only an act of Congress could provide the permanent protection that he was seeking. Andrus needed a champion for the Birds of Prey in Congress. And in 1990, I ran and got through a three-way primary and beat a five-term state senator and became the first Democrat in 24 years to win the seat in the first district of Idaho. And then I become elected governor again. I say to Larry LaRocco, we need to get that done. Larry LaRocco, after consulting with Andrus, was ready to champion a bill for the Snake River Birds of Prey area. But there was no guarantee that he would successfully get this bill passed into law. There are instances of people working for years to create wilderness and then have Reagan veto the bills. And they've never resurfaced. But you got to take that chance because uh, not doing anything, there are lots of excuses you can make. You could say, oh, I don't want to do this my first term because it might be controversial. I don't want to take a chance. I want to, uh, uh, I, I want to play it safe. Well, you don't know if you get a second chance in in Congress, especially if you're a Democrat from Idaho. I mean, let's be honest here. And the clock was ticking. The withdrawal was only valid for 20 years. So we had already exhausted 10 years of that 20 years, and nobody had done anything. So um, I just decided I was going to do it. We put all hands on deck with that bill, and we just said, this is job one and uh, let's do it. You're listening to Common Land, a podcast series produced by the Wildlands Collective and Radio Boise with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Common Land tells the stories behind protected areas, and in this season, we are exploring the creation story behind the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, home to a unique population of North American raptors. Larry LaRocco got his start in politics in the 1970s when he... Worked on Senator Church's campaign in 1974 and got to know him. And he asked me to join his staff in 1975. I was pretty happy when I first heard that because I thought that I was going to go back to Washington, D.C., where I had studied international relations. And um, he asked me if I would go to Moscow, Idaho, and be his North Idaho field representative. And so... um, 
Uh, we moved to Moscow, Idaho, and for six years, I represented uh, Senator Church from the Salmon River to the Canadian border in 10 counties. Frank Church had been a U.S. senator representing Idaho since 1957. He was one of the youngest senators ever elected at the time, and he went on to become a prominent and often outspoken voice in the Senate, voicing strong opposition to the Vietnam War and sponsoring both the Wilderness Act and the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. Throughout the mid to late 1970s, Church and his staff were involved in negotiating the establishment of what would become the largest wilderness area in the lower 48. One of the main major uh, issues was uh, the Gospel Hump Wilderness, where the Sierra Club and the environmentalists uh, coveted that area. It was prime candidate for wilderness designation, and they were working hard on that. So there was a big meeting in Grangeville one time with Senator Church, and he was asked to mediate a solution. And he said he would do that, and then he assigned me to do that. Um, so I was the on-the-ground person in Grangeville and Elk City between the timber industry, the Chamber of Commerce, and the Sierra Club. So we passed that bill, and I got deeply involved in those issues. The bill creating the Gospel Hump Wilderness in central Idaho was passed into law in 1978, but it would take two more years of negotiations to create the wilderness area that Church would become best known for. Church waded into the um, River of No Return wilderness issue, and uh, I was helpful with him on a staff level with that and fortunate enough to sit behind him on the floor of the Senate on the day that we passed that bill through the Senate. It was uh, a very proud day for me uh, to be with him, and uh, it was a very gutsy thing for him to do at the time. The River of No Return Wilderness is adjacent to the Gospel Hump Wilderness in central Idaho, and together they make up a 3.3 million acre roadless area, the most substantial designated wilderness area in the lower 48 states. Church narrowly lost re-election to the Senate in the same 1980 election that handed Reagan the presidency. He died of pancreatic cancer just four years later, but his passion for protecting public lands would live on through his staffer and mentee, Larry LaRocco. I ran for Congress in 1982 after Church lost, um, and I had a very interesting strategy where I, I took a job in every one of the counties, there are 19 counties, for a week at a time, and some of those jobs were timber-related, uh, building logging roads, for example, up in uh, Boundary County and Bonners Ferry. And I just continued my involvement and immersion into na- public lands issues. Loraco wasn't immediately successful in his campaigns for public office, however. He narrowly lost that 1982 congressional election. Then... I ran for the state Senate in 1986. At that time, it was the most expensive legislative race in the history of the state. And um, so I narrowly lost and thought that uh, my political future was uh, over. I had lost twice. I had run against two incumbents, Larry Craig and Jim Brish, and then uh, Jim McClure decided to retire in 1990, and uh, immediately Larry Craig, who was the first district congressman, decided to run for the U.S. Senate. It was an open seat. My wife and I huddled, and uh, uh, we had a policy of not running against incumbents, and it was now an open seat. So um, I ran. So I won with 53% of the vote. I was the happiest guy on uh, the planet uh, to win that seat in 1990. It was a a long trek. Then I had to fight 
actually and lobbied to get a seat on the Interior Committee. Uh, th that was not automatic. And actually, there were only four seats that were available because of retirements and so forth on the committee. And um, there were four Easterners, uh, members of Congress from the East, who wanted those seats. And basically, they wanted them to burnish and shine up their environmental credentials. None of them had timber-dependent communities or came from public land states. So I lobbied hard for that. And then uh, the Speaker of the House, my neighbor, uh, Tom Foley, expanded the committee by one that got me on the committee. And I introduced nine uh, pieces of legislation in my first two years. Three of them were referred to the committee, and one of them was uh, the Birds of Prey bill. So then uh, we moved the bill forward, had a hearing out here, and uh, moved it forward, passed it on suspension of the rules, which means that it was non-controversial. So nobody objected to that, then it moved over to the Senate. And then uh, Larry Craig had a choice of whether he was going to block it or take it up. And to his credit, he took it up. The language changed, but it was essentially the same bill. And then we ran out of time in what was the 102nd Congress at the end of the year. And so what a lot of people don't understand about legislation is that if it doesn't pass in that session uh, of Congress, in that Congress, then um, you start over. It's done. It didn't happen. I mean, it was extremely frustrating for me. I mean, I'm not a, at that point, I wasn't a seasoned legislator, but I just spent, you know, almost two years working on this piece of legislation with lots of meetings and lots of contention. And I wanted it to be resolved. And I was coming up for re-election as well. Uh, my opponent actually opposed the Birds of Prey area in 1992, Rachel Gilbert. She actually opposed the creation of the National Conservation Area. I won every county for re-election in 1992. So something was going right. I think people liked my approach. So then we came back in 1993. And uh, the day that the Congress was open for business, I introduced nine pieces of legislation that I was sponsoring. And one of them was the Birds of Prey. So we got it passed on suspension of the rules, and then it went to the Senate, and uh, Larry Craig kept his promise to his credit, and uh, the bill moved forward on unanimous consent and uh, moved to the White House. And the president signed it on August 4th, 1993. Tracy Andrus, the middle daughter of former Idaho governor and secretary of the interior Cecil Andrus, reflects on her father's role in pushing the Rocco's legislation forward. You know what's interesting about that timing? 1993 is coming up on the end of his fourth and final term. And that's back into reading. It's kind of a replay of what he could see when he was in Washington. He needed to do what he could do while he was there. Well, in 1993, it's like, if I'm ever going to get this through, and Larry was in Congress, a friend and colleague and somebody that he could depend on. It was the perfect alignment. And who knew what was going to happen after Dad left office in January of 1995? It was time to get it done. 
The reason it's named the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area is because it, the original champion wasn't a political champion. It was a, it was a community activist champion. And that's how things happen, you know? He's a Republican who got along with C. Sandras, and C. Sandras was smart enough to listen to a Republican because he knew what he was talking about. And that's, that's the 486,000 acres we're now trying to get Congress to set aside. This interview, which provided our introduction to Morley, was actually recorded by Kent Carney before the passage of LaRocco's legislation. It is the 5th of July, 1990. I did need to check for the record the, uh, what, what is a more, the W stand for? Moreland W. Nelson. Wendell. Wendell. Okie dokie. Morley was in his late 70s in 1993. He had first visited the Snake River Canyon in 1939, 54 years before it would become a national conservation area. He had spent an entire lifetime advocating for the protection of the Snake River Canyon and the surrounding area. Seven years later, when he was in his 80s, Morley spoke about the significance of this achievement in an interview with his biographer, Steve Stubner. Well, I'm proud of getting the Snicker Birds of Prey National Conservation Area going, and, but that's the most uh, wonderful thing that I've done. The motion pictures with Walt Disney helped get all this done. I did seven films with Walt Disney on the Birds of Prey down that canyon, and that, that's what Help me get it where it is. Soon after LaRocco's legislation was signed into law, there was another dedication ceremony along the edge of the canyon at what had now become commonly known as Dedication Point. Morley's oldest son, Norm, shares his memories from that day. Well, the dedication day we were there filming, we were pretty damn excited because Cecil Andrews was going to be there. And all the, I mean, this is a big deal for us, you know, doofy little filmmakers. We were going to go hang out with all these high rollers in the canyon. So we were pretty exuberant that day. But also, it was another work day. You got to shoot this. Okay, get the tripod. You know, so it was also routine. Make sure the battery was charged and cut the right F-stop, all the damn camera down there, shoot the, you know, get a few good shots. So we were kind of working. But it was... It was a choker, especially when Dad talked, it was a choker. The dedication of this national conservation area also marked 22 years of collaboration and friendship between Morley Nelson and his top political ally, Cecil Andrus. But to the people of Southwest Idaho, this meant a lot more than the achievement of any individual, as Cecil Andrus's daughter, Tracy Andrus, explains. The thing that I do remember was how proud we all were, not just me, not just Dad, but all of the people that I knew in this area were so proud of creating um, that birds of prey and of being home to the birds of prey because they believed in, in what Morley set out to do. And, and the fact that it was right here in the heart of the Treasure Valley was really important to us. So I, I just remember that, that significant sense of pride Dean Bibles, who wrote Andrus's administrative withdrawal in 1980, was particularly proud to see the area protected permanently. I was thrilled. You know, you one of those things when you're, you're, you're happy it happened finally before the 20 years expired. I worried about what was going to happen. This is what you do as a member of Congress. It's a wonderful position. You can do what you want. 
I introduced nine bills and sponsored nine bills in my first term. In my second term, I introduced 31 pieces of legislation. It was a busy time. It was frenetic, it was chaotic. And, uh, and for this particular issue on the NCA, we did it. Uh, I mean, we were successful. What we should be clear about is that this was a piece of legislation that was based on science, and uh, clearly uh, those are not political boundaries uh, of the NCA. I have long contended, and I think I'm still right, that the only place in the entire world that an ecosystem was scientifically the boundaries were scientifically designed is right here at this Birds of Prey area. After his involvement with the Birds of Prey area and Andrus's 1980 administrative withdrawal, Dean Bibles had a dual appointment with the Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and Environment and headed the uh, uh, United States uh, Biosphere Reserve National Committee and served then as uh, they had a party to UNESCO and traveled quite extensively as a uh, diplomat for the State Department. Fortunately, I've had an opportunity to visit as a guest of those countries to go look at their parks and do some evaluations. And I, I've contended many times that over here in Idaho was this area that was determined by scientific study. I do personally think that globally it is so important to have an area that was not politically modified, that it was set aside by the, the Congress. The, the lines were drawn. I mean, I was there. I know who drew the lines. It was drawn by the scientists, the whole combination of scientists. As I look at resource management, natural resource management, I see uh, different horizons. We deal with a two-year horizon, which is the congressional turnover, a four-year, which is a presidential turnover, a six-year, which, which is a Senate turnover. But in natural resource terms, depending on which ecosystem you're dealing with, it's more in decades. I, I guess in trying to to figure out a way to deal with the political horizons, the two, four, and six. As a natural resource manager, you need to somehow figure a way to convert that so that you can sell someone that's in for only two years why it's important to, to do this. Certainly, Larry LaRocco was one of those rare politicians who was able to see beyond the two-year horizon of his political term as a U.S. representative. We should not operate just in our comfort zone. We should operate outside of our comfort zone to do the right thing for the protection of these beautiful lands. I mean, I had four years in Congress, but there have been fewer than 12,000 Americans that had the chance that I did and the privilege and the honor to serve in the Congress. What I feel good about is that every minute that I was there, I tried to advance the ball for the good of the state and the country. And, and the NCA is, is one of those examples. And at the end of it, uh, this is 
19, uh, this is 2018, this is 25 years after, yes, it is my greatest accomplishment. This is number one. This is number one. I'm extremely proud of this. You know, I passed a bill to create the East Mojave Preserve in California, which was 1.6 million acres, and multiple amendments that I worked on. But this, as a standalone bill, through the process, was sort of a case study and, and uh, what needed to be done. Larry LaRocco sought a third term for his District 1 congressional seat in the 1994 election, but... I lost to Helen Chenoweth in 1994. She clearly did not believe in uh, these types of federal actions for protection. So uh, if I had not done it uh, in my four years in, in the House of Representatives, then, then that clock was going to really tick and expire, I think. But was the passage of legislation creating the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA necessarily tied to this particular congressional seat? Couldn't a more liberal congressperson from another state have championed this bill? It didn't matter. It could have been a congressman or a senator from Florida if somebody took it. But under general courtesy in the Congress, those actions are taken by the in-state members of the delegation. So while it certainly wasn't necessary for the bill creating the NCA to be championed by an Idaho representative, in practice, it wouldn't have happened any other way. How then does a politically conservative state like Idaho end up with so much protected land? Idaho is over 60% publicly owned, and 14% of that public land is designated wilderness. Only Alaska and California have more designated wilderness acreage than Idaho. These days, Democratic politicians are typically associated with land protection, while many Republicans are actually advocating for and enacting the retraction of previously designated protected areas. But... Democrats aren't Democrats. I mean, it depends on what part of the country you're from. And the Western Democrat is much more like a centrist that, that, yeah, can work with Republicans because they're not perceived as crazy too liberal. Because they can't be. They'd never get elected. I'm John Freemuth. I'm a professor at Boise State and the Anderson Dowd Chair there, which is, is focused on public lands and the environment. John Freemuth considers Cecil Andrus to be the quintessential Western Democrat. While Andrus's liberal stances on public lands issues are celebrated, it's worth noting that Andrus took more conservative stances on issues such as abortion rights. Despite a high-profile veto of a highly restrictive state abortion bill in 1990, Andrus was a pro-life Democrat throughout his political career, and this, in part, helps explain how he was able to win Idaho's governorship on four separate occasions, winning over 70% of the vote in the 1974 election and 68% in 1990. But public lands took center stage in several of Andrus's statewide elections, and he was able to sway more conservative voters to support his liberal ideas about protecting public lands because... Andrus was a true sportsman. His, his philosophy would be that those lands were for everybody. They ought to be protected for all the reasons we like to enjoy them, whether it be hunting or hiking or whatever. But the Western Democrats are moderate. You know, they understand multiple use. Uh, they understand the needs of sportsmen. And they aren't afraid to work with Republicans. Andrus was well known for his willingness to work across the aisle, especially with fellow politicians from Western states. There was a Western Republican back then, too, that was much more in the middle than we see 
now in some cases um, with some Republican governors that are elected in the West. Certainly not all of them, though. But the fact remains, the vast majority of Idaho's protected areas were created by Democratic politicians championing legislation, with Frank Church playing an outsized role. The Republican Party has changed, and it's become much more conservative. Larry LaRocco has some firsthand experience with this political shift that's occurred. Um, I know this for a fact because I ran for statewide office in 2006 and 2008, and I thought that uh, I could make a comeback, and I was wrong. <laughs> it didn't work. I ran for the lieutenant, uh, for lieutenant governor in 2006 and the U.S. Senate in 2008 okay. and got 39% of the vote. So have we seen the death of the Western Democrat in Idaho? And if it's impossible for Democrats to get elected in this state, what does that mean for continued efforts to protect our public lands here in the West? The stuff of privatizing the public lands, I, I don't think Idahoans will stand for it. Privatization of public lands has reemerged in recent years as a hot political topic among Republicans. But the issue hasn't gained much traction in Idaho, despite the state being one of the most politically conservative in the nation. Professor John Freemuth explains. If you transfer the federal lands to the states to manage, and they could be transferred, that's totally constitutionally legal to the state. The state can't afford to manage them like the federal government, so what are they going to do? They're going to sell off some of it. Well, bingo, the minute that starts, you're going to see locked gates, most people think. So that's why I don't think that's going to happen. It's the great question of what is the proper role of local interests and state interests in federal lands? This question is central to the ongoing management of our public land system, and it's relevant to more than just the controversy over privatization of public lands. In December of 2017, President Trump announced an unprecedented reduction in our national conservation lands system, reducing the newly created Bears Ears National Monument to 15% of its original size and shrinking Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument by nearly half. There are lawsuits now, and a lot of legal minds have weighed in on this. There's no definitive answer to the question of whether a president can do this. You would think that they need to have a pretty clear set of definitive reasons that are science-based on why they're changing the monument size, because to make a monument, you have to, in your proclamation, say why you're doing it, what resources are there, and thus the boundaries are this way. Although the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA was not affected by this action from the Trump administration, both Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante are managed as a part of the National Conservation Land System alongside the Birds of Prey NCA. The Bureau of Land Management has these areas, and this is a long story, that are part of what's called the National Landscape Conservation System or National Land System now, which are areas that you might say BLM would protect as their crown jewels, much like we talk about the great national parks as our crown jewels. And it's one of them. What's to stop, okay, the next president, let's say it's a, uh-oh, it's a Democrat, and the House and Senate, Trump has so screwed up, listeners, that's not a partisan comment, I'm doing a political scenario here, that the Republicans lose all kinds of seats. So you've got a strong Democratic majority, and President Bullock decides, I really liked the Bears Ears the way they were. I'm reestablishing those boundaries. Do we want to open up that can of worms where you go whoop, 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 back and forth? 
Dean Bibles has some advice for land managers and politicians working on public lands issues during this highly contentious and polarized moment in U.S. history. A little bit like in a car, you have a little bitty rearview mirror and a huge windshield. You need to look behind you occasionally, but mostly you need to look toward the future in front of you. Since Larry LaRocco lost his congressional seat in the 1994 election, only one Idaho Democrat has won either statewide office or election to Congress, making the role that LaRocco played in championing the legislation that created the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA that much more important. Although the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA doesn't face the same threats of dramatic size reduction that other areas within the National Conservation Land System have experienced in recent years, serious challenges remained after the area was permanently protected. As we'll learn, the process of establishing the official permanent boundaries for a national conservation area doesn't necessarily guarantee protection for the animals and ecosystems that call that area home. Common Land is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise, with support provided by the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Peregrine Funds Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. This episode was produced by Wayne Burt, Steve Alsip, and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Production assistance was provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, and Ragged Coyote. Music is by Like a Rocket, Ragged Coyote, and The Great Turtle. Visit our website at commonlandpodcast.com to learn more about the show and to see a full list of credits.